You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. I'm a soldier. Boy, I told ya, I hold the scriptures like you hold chips on your shoulder. Biblical clips, better load up. The snare and the drums go snap The lyrical tongue cocks back The air of my lungs flows And that's enough to spark a revolution Man, listen, my music is ammunition I march to the tune of a man smitten Was slain as a lamb Yet he stands risen just as it was written My orders are across borders Living waters in my canteen As my camp screams for the God we love Even though we can't see him And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet Ashley's my middle name not my wife's name, despite what some people think when they very first find me on social media or online. They think, oh, Garrett and Ashley, is this one of those joint social media accounts? No, it's not. My wife's name is Lauren. She is my feminine side. My middle name being Ashley is not my feminine side. That is a boy's name or rather a man's name because I'm a man. I was once a boy and it was a boy's name when I was a boy. Now I'm a man. So it's a man's name because I'm a man. There you have it. But speaking of defining our terms, this episode, we are talking about theology, religion, worldview, and dominion and how those things relate to one another. A broad overview. This is, of course, episode 425 of the podcast. We are a quarter of the way now between episode 400, which is behind us, and episode 500, which is yet to come, Lord willing, and today is Wednesday, July 6, 2022. To start with, we're going to define some of our terms according to Oxford Languages. Theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. The study of the nature of God, you could also say his godness, or you could say the ontology, there's a big word for you. Ontology is just essence, nature, you're studying the nature of a thing. But you could also say the study of God's godness. You could also say, instead of theology, godology. But more precisely, so that people know what you're talking about, theology is the study of the nature of God and religious belief. Adjacent theology or related closely to theology, is religion, which is defined as the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods. So theology is study of the nature of God and religious belief, and religion is the actual belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power. That isn't necessarily confined to God or a pantheon of gods, but it could be, it probably will be, it certainly is in the case of Christianity. Worldview is another related concept. It is not the same thing as religion, and it is not the same thing as theology, but it is very closely related to both. And it is defined as a particular philosophy of life or conception of the world. And I would say that your worldview will be downstream of your theology and your religion. Theology is, in some sense, 
uh, upstream, in some sense downstream, your religion. So you could have a belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, i.e. God, that leads you into the study of theology and also leads you into forming a comprehensive worldview, a philosophy of life, a conception of the world, which is informed by your religion and informed by your theology. But those are three distinct separate things which are not all one and the same. They are closely related. They are very much adjacent. So why are we talking about this? Well, for one thing, at lunchtime yesterday, I decided it was time to give a whiteboard talk to our children on the question of definitions. And I don't say children as if our oldest son, Josiah, and next down, Eli, and next down, Solomon, and next down, Daniel, are all children in the same way that our youngest four, Evelyn, Enoch, John, and Andrew, are children. Actually, I would say Josiah uh, especially is a young man, and Eli is a young man, and Solomon is a young man, and Daniel is right between. He's transitioning from being a boy to being a young man, in my view. But these sons, especially, I wanted to talk about theology with, and I wanted to talk about the differences between theology and religion, and also the importance of definitions and how we need to define our terms. And when we encounter unfamiliar concepts and their corresponding terms, we should do the work. If it is not done for us, we should do the work of pursuing definitions so that we understand what's being talked about. But along the way, and in the course of this whiteboard talk and lecture, if you will, I was pointing out to them that among the very important differences between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the deities of other religions is the fact that our God in the Christian religion is infinite. By contrast, consider Zeus and Odin and Osiris. In Greek mythology, Zeus is not eternal and he is not infinite. He has children with both gods or goddesses, if you will, and women, human women alike. He feuds and he schemes and he plots and he maneuvers. And even though he is very powerful in the Greek pantheon, even he is afraid sometimes of what other gods and goddesses might do to him. In Norse mythology, Odin is also neither eternal nor infinite. In fact, in one of the stories about him, he sacrifices one of his two eyes to be able to see everything that happens in the world. And that is just another way of saying he can't have it all. He can't have it all. He has to make trades and sacrifices to gain things that are not otherwise in his possession. Osiris, too, in Egyptian mythology, is not either infinite or eternal. He was an important god in the Egyptian pantheon, small g, lowercase g, god. But he had parents, he had siblings, he had a consort, which is kind of like a wife, sort of. 
but he had children. And also an important part of his myth is that he is at a certain point murdered by his jealous brother. He is actually murdered. Some God, he can die and he does die and it gets complicated and it gets weird, but that is (laughs) mythology for you. It gets weird. They make it weird. Or it actually was weird, which is a topic for another day, which I would like to get into at some point, my view of mythology or my theory uh, about mythology. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that in this episode because better than us getting lost in the weeds on mythology is us studying theology. And yet a subset of that is, well, what do you do about the myths of the ancient Greeks and Norse and Egyptians? Uh, Not necessarily in that order. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the creator. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. And he is simple in the sense that he is not made up of parts. So the doctrine of divine simplicity means that God is not made up of components, which can be separated out, which can be added to or subtracted from. He is not made up of parts in the way that we are. We are made up of parts. We are organisms and we have organs and we can lose parts and we can, in some sense, gain parts, I guess, kind of, sort of, but never quite uh, (laughs) as uh, gracefully as God has made us of parts in the first place. We are not as good small C creators as God is a big C creator. He can create out of nothing, ex nihilo. He can also refashion things that are made up of other things. Like for instance, when he takes the dust of the ground and he makes a man out of it and then breathes the breath of life into the man, he can do that because he is God. And we cannot do that in the way that he does it because we are not God. That's an important distinction between creator and creation. One which, again, as I'm trying to highlight in briefly touching on the ancient mythologies, makes Christianity a very different religion from what the Greeks and the Norse and the Egyptians, among others, held to. But one of the ways that Christianity is enigmatic is that the God of Christianity is this same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is said to be Trinitarian by Orthodox Christians, Orthodoxy being defined once famously by G.K. Chesterton as the Apostles' Creed. If you agree with the Apostles' Creed, you are orthodox. If you disagree with it, you are a heretic. You are no Christian, whatever you might want to tell yourself and other people. You are no Christian. But Trinitarianism means that God is in three persons, but he is not three gods. He is one God. He is one God in unity, unity in Trinity, or Trinity in unity, it's complicated, but he is not complicated or complex. We are just finite. And this is something the Athanasian Creed especially helps to drive home when it talks about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each being incomprehensible, and God, the Trinitarian God, being incomprehensible ultimately. That is not a bug. It is a feature of Christian theology, and that makes Christian theology somewhat eccentric, if you will. Another eccentric quality 
is that we believe Jesus Christ was and is and forever will be fully God and fully man. This is referred to as, in short, the hypostatic union. And again, this is difficult to understand, if not impossible for us to understand, not because it's untrue, but because he is God and we are not God. This is part of what it means that he is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God being eternal and incomprehensible, we are not God and he is other. And that is Christian theology. The psalmist sings in Psalm 113, 4 through 6, Yahweh is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Which is to say, when he is God of all gods, that means he is God above these other petty tyrants, whether they were men who had cults form around them, or whether they were fallen angels, or whether they were some other class of created being above men, which we typically in our day refer to with a generic term, angel in the English. It doesn't matter. There is no God like our God. That is what makes Christian theology possible and necessary, both and. But it's important to mark the differences between religion and theology in light of this passage. In other words, you would be hard-pressed to find anything resembling the subject and approach to theology, which we call Christian theology in the ancient cults of the Greeks, the Norse, the Egyptians, etc. You do find in those ancient cults and mythologies temples, groves, rituals, monuments, festivals, stories told around campfires and written down. Also, at a certain point, especially in Greece, or at least in Greece, you find philosophers skeptically questioning whether the gods exist, whether they ever existed at one time, or whether they really were gods, whether we should worship them. That gets the philosophers into a bit of trouble because, of course, some people think that is very irreverent and you are liable to bring down the wrath of the gods on us by questioning whether they exist or denying that they exist or denying that they should get worship. But the way these gods of other nations are related to is nevertheless very different because of the truth of what the psalmist writes, and that is the question of who is like Yahweh our God? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is no one. Who is like Yahweh our God? No one. No one is like Yahweh our God. He stands alone, high above, high and exalted. That is a truth claim which is very important and which is very different, is very unique compared with the other myths and religions of the ancient nations, the ancient peoples. Now, religiously, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all are known as Abrahamic religions. They are also referred to as monotheistic religions, although Jews and Muslims alike very often will reject Christianity being considered a monotheistic religion, and this is in large part because they don't understand Trinitarianism. They, I think many of them, prefer to misrepresent 
Trinitarianism, even if they kind of sort of do hear what we're saying, they want to say, ah, that's not monotheism. That's tritheism. No, 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 no. If and when some people espouse tritheism and they call it Christianity, they are heretics and wayward. Christianity, within the first 500 years, was emphatically defined as monotheistic. The Shema Israel says, Behold, Israel, the Lord our God is one. And yet, Judaism and Islam claim to worship this same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, in uh, the study of comparative religions, religious studies generally, all three, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, are known as Abrahamic religions because all three revere, in some sense, Abraham, Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. But Orthodox Christians do not worship the same God as Jews who reject the Messiah or Muslims who say that Jesus was only a prophet but was not the Son of God. They reject both that Jesus was the Son of God. And insofar as they reject that Jesus was the Son of God, they are rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether they would admit to it or not, whether they realize it or not. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that last little bit there, and truth, is what Christian theology is made of. Christian theology is the diligent, concentrated, focused study of the truth about God to the end of worshiping him. That is to say, Christian theology believes, asserts, operates on the premise that the truth about God is, to some extent, even though ultimately incomprehensible to we finite sinful creatures, it is knowable to the extent that God has communicated clearly and effectively about himself what he wants to be known of himself. That is, in part, through general revelation. Say, for instance, the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation itself testifies to God's nature, his existence for one, but also his character. But also, too, God has given us his word. And for Christians... That means the Old Testament is made sense of in part because of the New Testament and also that the New Testament follows because we believe that the Old Testament is true. A rejection of the New Testament is, therefore, as Christians regard it, a rejection of the Old Testament as well. Jews will say, we only believe the Old Testament. Well, no, you don't, because if you did, you would also believe that the New Testament is true. You would believe in the Messiah, but your rejection of the Messiah demonstrates that you are not the noble Jews that are spoken of in the book of Acts as being from Berea, who searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things that Paul and Barnabas were preaching to them were true. You do not search the scriptures diligently to see whether these things are true. You reject the testimony of the prophets. You reject the law, 
as pointing towards Christ, the Messiah. And insofar as you do that, you may hold to a form of godliness, but you deny its power. And I don't say that because I'm trying to be hateful towards you. I say that because actually part of the reason that God has welcomed in and adopted into his family, into his kingdom, Gentiles like myself, is to provoke you to jealousy. And so it would be good for you to be provoked to jealousy if that jealousy caused you to look into these things as well. You're not angels, and neither are we, but that's for the best when you realize that angels are actually jealous of us insofar as these things are not open to them. They do not have a redemption path available to them, but we do in Christ. Moving on. It is not for no reason that theology was for hundreds of years regarded in the West as the queen of the sciences. This is in large part thanks to men like Augustine, who helped to integrate their theology, their worldview, their Christian religion and worldview. They integrated these things to make sense of history and mythology and the sciences and human relationships and civics, etc. That clip that I played for you of a rap ditty at the top of this episode is actually from a Cross Movement Records album, and the track is titled Civilian Affairs. And we don't want to get sidetracked when we are following the Messiah. We are serving the Lord. We are taking up our cross and following him. We're obeying the Great Commission, etc., etc. We don't want to get sidetracked with civilian affairs. And yet, what are civilian affairs? except for those domains which reject God's authority. What are civilian affairs, except another way of saying the business outside of God's domain or what God has called us to attend to? And yet men like Augustine integrated their theology into their view of everything else, into their worldview. Augustine worked diligently not just to form a comprehensive Christian worldview for himself, but also to write it down to where we are still reading and benefiting from the work that he did. And so for hundreds of years, theology was regarded as the queen of the sciences. And only when theology is the queen of the sciences do we rightly integrate all of these other subjects into our worship of God in spirit And in truth, only when we regard theology as the queen of the sciences do we have wisdom for Christian life and thought more broadly. And yet the Enlightenment, a few hundred years ago, placed a special emphasis on man's rationality, his ability to reason. And humanism, though it started around that time, as a movement in Christian circles to place greater emphasis on valuing man's nature as created by God, and that to the end of being excellent, pursuing arete, excellence, uh, honoring God in the way that we treated one another, respecting, loving one another, serving one another. Humanism, when wedded to an overemphasis on man's rationality gave us secularism. 
Secularism is a relatively new development in the thinking of the world, uh, certainly in the West. And secularism is essentially a truth claim about what is and is not within God's domain, what is not under God's authority, what is not to be related to in light of our Christian faith. It's something a bit like saying there is a place for your Christian worldview, and that place is at home, in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own heart. But no, 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 you can't regard queen uh, theology in these other domains, in the physical sciences. No, 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 no. We're going to push theology to the periphery, dethrone theology among the sciences in favor of physical sciences, which we regard as more practically useful, as well as less contentious and less ephemeral, more tangible. We need things that we can see, touch, taste, feel, hear with our natural senses. Never mind that those also, when rightly considered, testify to God's character and to the need for us to worship God in spirit and in truth. Never mind that. In light of what secular humanism and godless materialism has wrought in the last century, I think we need to consider reconsidering what is practically useful. Ideas and beliefs have consequences. Uh, The Enlightenment got it wrong in secular humanism. Christian humanism, I think, in some measure, as long as it doesn't get out of hand, is a fine thing, especially in light of some of the alternatives. I should rather be a Christian humanist than a Christian inhumanist, where you hate your fellow man, you hate your brother, but you call that theology and reverence for God. Well, maybe not. Maybe your angry diatribes and your browbeating of your brother are not always motivated by your reverence for God. Maybe some of this is just that you are a sinner and you're sinful and you're actively disobeying God by not loving your brother, not loving your neighbor, not building him up, not building up the church. You're tearing it down all supposedly out of your devotion for God and your regard for heavenly things. In comparison to that, Christian humanism, I think, has some place, but the emphasis needs to be placed on Christ. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second is like it, but the second is not to be confused with the first. And if we get them reversed, it's like reversing the polarity on a battery. And you can start a fire that way. You can have an explosion that way. Plus is plus, minus is minus. Positive is positive, negative is negative. Get those twisted and watch out. (laughs) But religion is a separate piece. Religion is a separate piece from theology and from worldview. You can have a religion without having theology per se. And part of the reason for this is that most religions hold as their objects of worship either deities which do not promise any benefit or substance to studying diligently, uh, or they just don't have any deity at all. And in those cases, theology would be pointless, or at least the point of theology would be about as useful as the study of negative spaces. There's some utility to at least making a passing reference to space, but uh, 
you, you get too deep into it and then you start saying weird things like space is what connects us. No, that's the opposite of what space does. Space separates us. Space connects us. Have you lost your mind? I think so. You're not supposed to drink at work. It's not five o'clock. <laughs> oh, Kamala Harris. Anyway, again, not all religions are the same. We might think that all religions are the same if we are thinking on a superficial level and we're only considering the introductory emotions that we associate with religious faith. But what distinguishes one religion from another? It's the truth claims, right? The truth claims that one religion makes versus another and how those in the long run affect even the spirit of worship. You might just have the spirit of worship there, but if there's no truth grounding that, you won't be able to maintain it. At a certain point, you will just fall away because you'll realize, oh, this is exhausting and what benefit is it? You have to have some truth claims. And those truth claims have to be borne out in reality. There has to be a benefit. There has to be a profit in it. Otherwise, why do it, right? What distinguishes one religion from another is what are the truth claims? Are they actually true? And is there a benefit in knowing these things and in believing them? Now, again, worldview is a related piece and it's distinct, but it's downstream of religion and theology. And what we suppose is the penultimate person or object worthy of worship and devotion, that's going to decide what we believe and consequently what we act like uh, the chief end of man is. Worldview is how we view the world. And that has to change depending on what we believe about where the world comes from, why it's here, what condition it's in right now, and where it's going. And of course, we aren't just born in space. Space is not what connects us, actually. The earth, uh, I think you could say, connects us. You can get away from it for a little bit, some a little bit longer than others, but not by much. Uh, If you exert some energy, you can get away from the earth just a little bit, but then it pulls you right back. So then the earth is actually what connects us by God's design, and you've got to stay grounded unless you want to exert a lot of energy to get yourself off this rock. And then at least as things stand right now, you'd better take uh, a lunch. You'd better pack some lunch (laughs) because you're not going to find any out there. But worldview is simply enough, straightforward enough, how we view the world. And how we view the world is informed by where we think the world came from. If the world has always existed and will always exist because matter is eternal, matter and the universe are eternal, self-existent, without a cause, uh, that will influence how we perceive our place in the world and how we perceive one another, how we relate to one another. If we believe that a whole pantheon of gods was born of some other superhuman class of beings which created the world and gave it form and shape and substance, well, then that will inform how we see ourselves 
and how we relate to the world and how we relate to one another and how we see one another. But if we believe that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, ex nihilo, there are really big implications for that. There are really big implications. For one, we put a lot of importance in the spoken word. If God created by speaking creation into existence out of nothing, we cannot do that. And yet, just like the difference between a big C creator and little C creator being made in God's image, also very important for us to note, there must be some power in speaking, in what we say. If there is that much power that God created ex nihilo, all that is, by speaking it into existence, then so also that will change how important, how valuable, how powerful it is when we speak. It's not one-to-one, but insofar as we are image bearers, we reflect God's power in speaking when we speak. And that's also why it's very important that we say things that are true and that are good and that are necessary. That's why God takes it so seriously, what we say and what we don't say. That's why worship is so important as well. But defining terms is a necessary prerequisite to studying the relationship of persons, places, things to one another and defining our relationship to persons, places, and things and to one another. And again, this is something of a outgrowth, our conviction in this regard. It's something of an extension of the fact that we read as Christians, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when it says that he spoke, it is important that we place a proper value a proper stock in defining terms, expanding our vocabulary, being able to speak well, communicate well, write well. Now, it's interesting, again, speaking of Genesis, it's interesting that the first thing the first man, Adam, did after God made him was name the animals. The first thing the first man, Adam, did after God made him was name all the animals. Likewise, the first thing Adam did after God made the first woman, because Adam was there first, that's an important thing as well. God made Adam first, then made Eve, but also man comes from the woman. Only Adam was the first man. All the rest of us come from a man and a woman, both, which is also important. But Adam names Eve. Adam names the animals and Adam names Eve. Have you ever stopped to think about that? You know, when we're talking about defining our terms and vocabulary, imagine yourself in Adam's shoes. What do you want to call this creature and this creature and this creature and this creature? And oh, by the way, here is a woman, your woman, your helpmeet, suitable for you. What will you call her? This naming business is the first step to organizing and orienting. And you can call this a lot of different things. You can call this management. You can call this lordship. You can call it dominion. You can call it authority. All of those are fair 
because again, we're talking about etymology, we're talking about defining our terms, we're talking about vocabulary, all of those capture a certain essence of the dynamic here. But it's important to recognize you name people, places, and things you intend to do something to or with or about. You don't name people, places, and things which are considered unimportant or irrelevant or out of your grasp to affect. And so this too, this is to my embarrassment, why it bothers me as much as it does when I don't remember people's names. And it might be just, I've met so many people in my life that I'm not always sure I'm ever going to interact with this person in a meaningful way in the future. And I don't mean anything ill by that. I just sometimes forget people's names and I'll remember details about them. Sure. I'll remember their face, things they told me, and a story that they told me, things I observed about them. But by golly, I have the hardest time remembering people's names sometimes. But to be fair too, I didn't name them. If I had named them, I think I would remember it's interesting too. Adam names the animals. Adam names Eve. God names everything else that he wants to come into existence. Adam is just naming what God has already created, but which God has created Adam to name. So God creates, but he also creates not just physically, he also creates relationally. That is to say, God creates in a relational way Adam, namely forming him out of the dust of the earth, creates a relationship between Adam and the earth. Breathing the breath of life into Adam's nostrils creates a relationship that is special between God and Adam, between God and man. Creating Eve out of the rib of Adam creates a special relationship between Adam and Eve, between man and woman. And then also, too, God having created categories of things, and yet giving Adam the task of naming the specific subjects within those categories, the individual unique subjects within those categories, was to say that God gave dominion, authority, lordship, management, stewardship over those subjects. He made those creatures, for instance, and yes, the woman, Subject to Adam. That's important to note. Defining our terms can get tedious, especially where we do read warnings in the New Testament to not get into quarrels about the meanings of words, which do no good to anyone, but only ruin the hearers. We're not supposed to quarrel about words. And yet we are supposed to study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, One might even say, rightly defining people, places, things, and their relationships to one another. What is worship except for recognizing and properly defining God's relationship to us and God's relationship to all of creation, past, present, future? And related to that, theology, the study of God, must be to the end of worship and dominion which are two very closely related things, and that they are distinct. Theology should be to the end of worship and dominion, not dominion over God. I think that's what puts a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths 
regarding theology is that they worry that we are trying to take dominion over God, which is very dangerous. That's a very dangerous thing to try and do. You won't succeed in doing the thing you think you're trying to do, but you will succeed in being destroyed. You you should fear God who can destroy the body and cast the soul into hell. You have one of each, the body and a soul. So take care. (laughs) But it's interesting that man, with regards to theology, man does not name God in the biblical narrative. Now he calls him by name, but who tells man what to call God or what name to use when saying, for instance, with Moses, who should I say sent me? It's very interesting, if you think about it, that Moses does not presume. He does not name God. God does not ask Moses, well, I don't, what do you think you should call me? You know, Moses doesn't become a second Adam and then God become a kind of creature that is being named and defined however we please. No. The proper orientation, the proper relationship between Moses and God is for Moses to ask God to define himself. Who should I say sent me? And then God answers, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am is a statement profound and I think sometimes misleadingly obvious for its implications. I am has sent you. Whoa, whoa. God is defining himself as independent, as necessary, as the authority, as sovereign. I am being, not becoming. I am. Even when Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, says before Abraham was, I am. Whoa, whoa. And what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him because they regard that as blasphemy because Christ is saying, I am God. And he is. And that is Christianity. And that is Christian theology, by the way. Not to repeat in a redundant way, but to repeat for emphasis. That is Christianity. But again, back to the purpose of naming things and who is naming who here and what does that convey? What does that communicate? To name a thing is to claim a kind of power over it. God tells us his name. We do not get to call God whatever we please. God tells us who he is because he maintains jealously authority over creation. So by golly, he will jealously oppose any effort, however slight, to try and claim authority over him. But the inverse is also true, that to call a thing by the name someone else has given it is to affirm the authority of the one who named that thing. You are agreeing. So for God to call himself by his name, for him to tell us his own name, and for us to then use that name is for us to agree with God. That is for us to affirm his authority, to name himself, to tell us who he is. Now, as an aside, but related, I sometimes <laughs> call other people's children the wrong name by accident. Uh, to be clear, I have never seriously named or renamed anyone else's child, but I have named my own. 
Sometimes I accidentally call my own children the wrong name. That's usually when I'm in too much of a hurry. And that always tells me I need to slow down. I'm doing too much. Slow down. You're not even calling your own children the right name. How are you supposed to call what they need to be doing and being about and having for an attitude right now by the right name? Slow down. But it would not be appropriate for me to name someone else's children, in my view. And it would not be appropriate for someone else to name my children something other than what Lauren and I have agreed to name our children. The reason for this is that we name our children because we are the ones who have authority over them. For me to name one of my children is for me to assert I have authority over my children. For my wife to name our children is to say that she has authority over them. Now again, as an aside to an aside, but not much aside, I would say that much of the trouble with public schools today has to do with the government monopoly on education, with teachers and administrators paid by you and I, the taxpayers, acting like they have the authority to rename our children. This is not small. This is not incidental. The pronouns business is a big deal. It is a question of authority, and it is a very important question of authority. Who has it with regards to our children? If you send your children to public school and you gave them a certain name at birth, and now they're coming home calling themselves by a new name that their teacher picked out for them, we have got trouble because your teacher is now claiming supreme authority over that child. That is a major problem, even with regards to pronouns. Let's say they haven't changed their name from Michelle to Michael or something, or Michael to Michelle, but now you called them he and him because you were in authority over them and because you've got the sense that God gave a goose to tell the difference between a penis and a vagina. You knew what they were when they were born if you didn't get it checked out with an ultrasound beforehand. So you call them he and him, which is in some sense to call them by their name. Now they come home from a public school and they're identifying as they, them. Oh, are there several of you now? Is this We Are Legion uh, going on? Where's a herd of pigs when I need it? But this is not incidental. This is not no big deal. This is a question of authority and who has it. Ultimately, whether God has it or whether the public school system has it, but also as a subset of that, since God has given authority over children to their parents for public schools and the government to try and usurp the authority of parents over their children in this most fundamental and basic of ways pertaining to naming our children is a rejection of God's authority. It is not just about pronouns. This is about God's authority to say who we are and you rebelling against God. If I disobey you when you tell me what pronouns to use, but you are the one who's a rebel against the Lord God, I'm not the disobedient one if I say, let God be true and every man a liar. You are the disobedient one. You are the rebel, actually. You're of your father, the devil. I will not go in with you. No. As an anecdote of a biblical nature, (laughs) what did the Babylonians do to those four young men we refer to as Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
Now, chances are they may have been eunuchs. Odds are that they may have been eunuchs as part of their serving in the administrative state. Maybe not, but possibly. But at a minimum, etymologically, which is just to say, as far as names go, when they were taken away from their parents and their homeland and brought to Babylon, the Babylonians changed their names, which were originally in the Hebrew, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Why was that? Why did the Babylonians change their names to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, their names were changed because the Babylonians were asserting authority over those youths, specifically the authority of Babylonian deities over them. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are names which are statements about the God of Israel. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are names which are statements regarding the gods of Babylon. But coming back to our original point, expanding our vocabulary is actually, lo and behold, a central part of expanding our dominion. It is a prerequisite for human civilization, for building community, for establishing purpose and belonging within a community, within a family. But I think this is part of what confuses a lot of Christian lay people about theology. I touched on this earlier, but to make the point more explicit, a lot of Christian lay people worry, rightly, I might add, depending on whose theology they've been exposed to, that to get into all of this and to encounter so many unfamiliar terms and to have to get definitions for those, to get names, if you will, to name the things rightly, to call them by their name and have it be the right name, is either a veiled attempt to bring God himself under our dominion, which again is a very dangerous, very dangerous thing to do. If you live long in the pursuit of such, it is not because (laughs) you are headed to the happy place when you die. Because God is using you as an instrument of judgment on others and as an example. But a lot of lay people worry that theology and the study of such is either a veiled attempt to exercise dominion over God or, at a minimum, that it's a thinly veiled attempt to assert dominance over other Christians. Uh, To use a, a more common term, they worry that theology is just an attempt at intellectual flexing on other Christians and non-Christians alike. But theology, I am realizing more here lately as I get older, can also be motivated by a love for God. It should. It can and it must, actually. If it's not motivated by love for God and one another, don't do it. But if you do love God and if you do love one another, if you want to worship God in spirit and in truth— you need to know what the truth is. You need to. And if you're supposed to study to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, well, what do we call that with regards to the study of God? You call it theology. So in closing, all of this is, I hope, a more intentional way to think about vocabulary and communication and what we believe about God about ourselves, about why we're here, how we got to where we're at, 
where are we? Uh, more to the point, but a lot of that is answered in unpacking where we come from uh, and also where we're going and what we should be about in the meantime. To say we want to know the names of people, places, and things is another way of saying that we will take on the responsibility and the privilege and the blessing that God has given us to steward that relationship in a way that honors him, in a way that pleases him, in a way that is obedient and faithful by God's grace. But you have to know what to call a thing. You know, I, I very often, when I don't know what something's called, I might say the thingamajig. And, you know, that's charming in a pinch, maybe. And if I can point to it, you know, okay, oh, this. But the most helpful people, when I point at a thing, I don't know what it's called, or I don't remember what it's called, or if I lean over to my wife and we're meeting people again for the second time, but it's been a while, and I'm just bad at remembering names, I'll say, what's that called again? Who is that again? Or they'll just tell me, right? Oh, you mean this? Fill in the blank. Insert name here. Ah, yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Some food for thought, at least. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. I got to run. I'm feeling a bit under the weather today, truth be told. Need to rest up today, take it easy, back to work tomorrow for seven days on. And I don't want to go back to work spent, exhausted, tired, and uh, unable to concentrate. So I'm going to have to rest today. But for now, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.